1: and welcome to the Votes and Verdicts podcast hosted by Bloomberg Intelligence, the investment research platform of Bloomberg LP. In this podcast series, we talk about the intersection of business, policy, and law. My name is Jennifer Ree, and I'm a senior analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence covering United States antitrust litigation and policy. So, this isn't the first of the Votes and Verdicts podcast series, but it is the first focus on antitrust issues. So, I'm going to call it the inaugural antitrust episode. And I'm really excited because I'm joined by Bill Al Sayed, who not only has a really impressive career in a wide variety of antitrust experience, but is also a good friend. Um, currently, Billal is the senior competition fellow for Tech Freedom, which is a nonprofit, nonpartisan technology think tank launched in 2021 that focuses on issues of internet freedom and technological progress. But before joining Tech Freedom, Billal was with the Federal Trade Commission, where he was the director of the Office of Policy Planning. Uh, that was during the Trump administration while the chairman was Joe Simons. And it was Bilal's second stint at the FTC after having been an attorney advisor for Chairman Tim Uris from 2001 to 2004. Now, on top of all that, he's also practiced law and is an adjunct professor for antitrust at George Mason University's law school. Bilal, that is really impressive and it's a lot. And I really appreciate you being here. Thanks so much.
2: Oh, I'm, I'm excited, ecstatic to be here.
1: <laughs> well, we'll have fun. And I'm enough to try to slow down how much I talk, and Bilal's gonna have to speed it up so that we meet in the middle, <laughs> right? Um, all right. You know, before we jump into like, our antitrust topics, it would just be interesting to hear a little bit about your career path and how you got there, and which role of all of those you like the most. So, tell us a little bit about yourself. So,
2: so first, you know, I uh, I grew up in New York, and the only relevance of that is um, after college, where we. We both were at the same college down at, at Case Western in Cleveland. Um, I, I came back to New York to work on a um, PhD in economics. And I found that I liked law and economics more so than, you know, sort of microeconomics or mm-hmm. financial economics. Uh, and, and this was in the late 80s, early 90s. And You're giving I away decided, our age.
3: <laughs> oh, go and,
2: on. <laughs> and I decided. I decided I wanted to do law and economics as sort of a, a career path, and thought, well, maybe I'll to go to law school. And at the time, George Mason was um, the only school, and I think still is the only school with a sort of a an emphasis on law and economics as sort of the the framing of of teaching mm-hmm. and thinking about law. Now, many of the law schools now have a law and economics scholar or two or three. But Mason, you know, uh, now the Antonin Scalia uh, Law School at George Mason University, you know, has just many, right? And, then, mm-hmm, yeah, and it, right. Was the, it was the place to do law and economics. Uh, and so I left um, graduate school to go do, uh, law, to learn the law and learn this framework. And when I was there, I discovered that I also liked the practical application of economics to law. Uh, and and the fields you do that in is sort of the regulatory fields uh, or antitrust. Sure. And I had the great benefit to hook up with um, a great professor at, at, you know, the law school, Tim Uris. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then while a student worked at uh, two great law firms, uh, what was then Collier Shannon, Rill and Scott with um, Jim Rill. Uh, and then Morgan Lewis with guys like John Shenefield and Kaz Hobb. Uh, and so I stayed in the field uh, and, you know, I had gone down to Washington with the idea of doing public service. Uh, and so when when Muris became chair of the FTC, I went with him. Uh, we left, you know, more or less together, practiced together uh, with not only with Tim, but with Christine Wilson, who was still a commissioner at the FTC for a few more days. Um, you know had the had the had the um ability to work on you know projects that were not just you know sort of deal work but that were sort of interesting policy projects uh when Joe Joe Simons uh went back uh, went went to the commissioner's chair I'd worked with Joe starting at collier shannon um uh, and then worked with Joe in the in the Muris, uh commission um and and you know Joe was kind enough. Uh, to to bring me back in the policy shop and the policy shop was um the most um at least potentially the most fun job mm-hmm. to have uh because I I participated in the cases in the tough cases and in the interesting cases um but didn't have any management responsibility for them uh and spent most of my time with with my group and and others at the commission you know thinking trying to think forward about, you know, how did we want the law to develop in certain areas, you know, Uh, thinking about policy, um, uh, policy statements that, you know, would impact how the commission, how, hopefully, how the courts, you know, thought about antitrust or thought about privacy. Um, Now, we were handicapped a bit by, you know, COVID. It knocked us Mm -hmm, out for a year. And, you know, the, like every agency, I think, you know, you're scrambling in that last year, you got people spread out, you'd manage, you know, trying to manage how to, how to, how to get things done that you have to get done, you know, and the policy stuff took a little bit of a backseat. So I I regret that. But, but that was the best, the best job because you were in the mix of interesting cases, but also thinking about, you know, policy. Uh, So that, that was the best, the best job.
1: Yeah, I can imagine. and I do think I do feel like that commission really got going. And then COVID kind of just, st- you know, slowed everything, put the brakes on. And and there was just a lot less happening. And, I, you know, I think that happened for all of us. But in particular, you're right for you, for the kind of work you were doing. It, it sort of slowed what you were able to do and what you wanted.
2: Yeah, we had, you know, you have to bring the cases because right. you don't get a second exactly. chance. But policy, you can do it, you know, when things settle down and, you know. It just I mean, everybody, this, this was, it, it wasn't clear at the time, but this was the beginning of this shift to, you know, working from home, not having mm-hmm. a central location, and the agency was managing it, and the agency, like everyone else, was managing, you know, people who were sick. You know, you were losing people, uh, uh, luckily just almost entirely just, you know, sick, mm-hmm. um, but you lost resources, the people had to learn to manage. Uh, People that they didn't see, you know, for weeks and months. So, you know, uh, it was a great job. Uh, A little bit uh, 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 of hopes unfulfilled, but it was a great job. And, you know.
1: Well, and things have taken quite a different turn now. Um, We're going to get into that a little bit, in a little bit, the turn that policy has now taken at the FTC since we have a new administration. But I want to first talk about this paper that you just published for Tech Freedom. I I read it. I think it's a great paper. This is called Actual Potential Entrance, Emerging Competitors and the Merger Guidelines. And I think, um, particularly for any antitrust geek, but anyone just interested in the topic, it's a great read. For me, I'm going to keep this as a resource because it's just such a great compendium of the history of the way this topic has been treated. So, um, and we're going to talk about this because it's kind of a new focus for the current FTC. So, talk to me a little bit about the paper you know what you've said in this paper and why you decided to write it
2: so the the paper really is an outgrowth uh <clears throat> excuse me of work we were doing at the agency so you know when when we got there uh there was this focus on um perceived failures by the previous administrations both democratic and republican mm-hmm. you know to to protect competition And and one concern was you allowed too many mergers, uh, and you didn't think hard about future competition. Right, the acquisition of let's say small firms that, if allowed to develop outside of the context of an acquisition, would have been you know the new the new titans to take on you know at the time, and even now you know Google and Facebook. So there was this belief not only part that people forgot about it and also that the law was not favorable or you know useful enough um, to, to bring these types of cases you know to stop acquisitions of small firms that might develop into larger innovative competitors and i thought that was a mistake i mean a number of i think anyone who's practiced think uh, realizes that's a mistake that mm-hmm. the law is there
3: mm-hmm.
2: <clears throat> these are difficult matters to bring because they're factual and the facts are tough you know you have a you have an instagram that has 13 employees right. you know if facebook's acquiring them instagram's going to be a challenge to yeah. facebook in a few years hey, you I have mean, to predict a the future like, nobody can predict yeah. the future when it comes so, to these things so right. the idea it's was hard. to just go back and look at the law and look at the cases that we were bringing in this case, the FTC, and 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 just say, okay, here's what we've done, right outside of litigation, but through a you know the consent process mostly. Um, what theories have we used? What theories maybe are missing? You know, what 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 is there law out there that can be further developed? What you know, it was it was really just intended at the time, you know, to inform both policymakers and practitioners. Mm -hmm. both of the of the tools that were in a sense were available and the tools that had been used and maybe identify areas where okay maybe that's an area that we don't that we haven't been able to to capture we haven't thought about or the law isn't clear whatever you know what do we what do we do next um and so you know we again we we didn't i didn't have a chance to sort of finish it as a as a commission uh, project but just sort of redid it, revised it, extended it, uh, and issued it just as a, as a standalone paper. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's, there's no, there's no confidential information in it. It just says, look, let's put things all in one place and use this as a resource to say, what are we doing? What are we missing? How can we think about this going forward? And, and of course, you know, also recognize that acquisitions of small firms may be, you know, beneficial Sure. uh products get to maybe products get to market faster or get to market at all get improved um, yeah get improved right? so you know let's not let's not stop things uh that are uh, potentially beneficial you know let's let's in a sense balance the what's the harm what's the benefit mm-hmm. you know so it was just it was almost as you said it's a compendium right it really There's is a lot of stuff and a lot of theories and hopefully you know when they do merger guidelines um, maybe they highlight some some things uh, that could have been clearer in an earlier guidelines, but but you know this it, it, it's hard now I think for people to say you know we have to do something new, uh, totally new, right? Because you, know, you this 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 thing includes somewhere near a hundred cases of potential competition, nascent competition, mm-hmm. or something similar, where the you know the the commission just you know, protected future competition. Uh, you know, and um, it's it's a it's a constant part of antitrust.
1: You know, it is, and I think there's a lot of focus on it today by the FTC and the Department of Justice too, when they're looking at these new mergers that are getting proposed, because I think there's a little bit of trying to make up for the lost time, right? Past regrets. Uh, You you know, you mentioned Google and Facebook. You know, I think there are these regrets about having cleared Facebook Instagram and Facebook WhatsApp and having cleared Google double click, maybe Google YouTube. And so, you know, obviously we saw this kind of in play recently because the Federal Trade Commission did try to block, well, they at least sought a preliminary injunction, right, to block Meta uh, from acquiring a small virtual reality company called Within that makes this fitness app. And and Meta wanted this fitness app. it was one of these potential competition theories. I mean, honestly, the first complaint, it started as just a plain old horizontal uh, deal. They said the two companies already competed. I, they sort of pulled back on that, which I think w- was a difficult thing to try to, uh, to try to prove and show. But they did say that Meta would have been potential competition had they not bought the entity. Now, they lost, but it was a failure on proof. It wasn't a failure on the legal theory. Right. And I think the FTC's kind of seeing that as a little bit of having lost the battle, but maybe won the war. I mean, what do you think about that decision?
2: So, you know, as in all things, yes and no, right? Right. I mean, I agree they lost on the facts. Mm-hmm. And that's um I, I think it actually was unfortunate they went forward on what appeared to me such weak facts mm-hmm. because it could have affected, um, and I think it did affect, you know. Whether they sort of won or lost on the on the law, so here's uh, you know my sense is they're claiming victory or some sort of victory mm-hmm. because the court accepted the idea of a you know potential competition doctrine uh as as a standard part of sort of section seven merger law uh you know I don't think that was ever in doubt right. amongst any anybody who practices <laughs> in this area they also um, got the court to um, accept that you know the the evidentiary showing of of future entry by in this case uh, meta you know only had to meet sort of the a reasonable probability standard mm-hmm. which um is the standard of section seven cases, but some cases in the late seventies early eighties adopted a higher standard of proof something like clear proof which I might, um, uh, 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 align with, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt mm-hmm. type, type thing. Um, and, and that, that type of standard, you know, clear, uh, clear probability, clear likelihood, um, that's pretty high, right? Because whether you enter a yeah. market or not, uh, as, as a business, you know, is, is often not so clear, right? You know, you have counter countervailing um, uh, influence. So in that sense, the agency won. But, but, and here's where I think they really did hurt themselves and hurt, in a sense, the cause. Um, If you're interested in this as an agency, reasonable probability, the court said, is well north of 50%. And that's pretty damn high. It is. And the agency itself, I think, does not actually use that standard when they're bringing their own consent order, right? When I was, my goal, you know, in a, as, a, as an agency person was to, to get some case law or even guidelines clarification that said reasonable probability was in fact well south of 50%. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, how you measure these things, who knows? But that, you know, that, that we would accept Significant uncertainty, and the court, both in this meta within challenge and in the most prior recent challenge, um, that the FTC brought, um, you know, accepted, you know, more likely than not, or well north of fifty percent, and that that is going to be a problem. Yeah, them. I think so. And and I think if they had better facts, the court might have thought harder about. You know, the potential magnitude of future harm Uh or even, you know, just does it really need to be above 50 percent? You know, you struggle with the facts, you know, you you make rough cuts and, you know, well north of 50 percent is pretty high in in an I think in antitrust. Well,
1: I think so, too. I mean, I think that would be a very difficult thing to prove, especially if you think about the kinds of documents that are probably coming out in the evidence businesses talk about ideas all the time. They throw ideas around, they, they share them, they think about them, they develop them, and they go away all the time. Right. And, and how to prove that, no, this was really going to happen. Um, you have to be well down the road in, in, it, in introducing a product to be above that 50%. But let's talk about one where maybe, I mean, I don't know, because I, I only can see what's publicly available, but maybe the evidence is actually a little bit stronger. And that's a pending deal before the Department of Justice. I I asked you about this earlier and whether you wanted to talk about it. And it's the Adobe Figma deal. Um, Again, I've I've researched this deal. And what struck me is the second I started to Google and look for information about it, the first thing I kept seeing was that Figma was this new scrappy company that was cutting into Adobe's market share. Right. And if you see that, it's just jumping out of the page at you. Uh, And then you see that people say Adobe way overpaid for Figma. You Mm. add that to it, which looks a little bit like the whole Facebook, Instagram situation way back when or WhatsApp. Um, And I wonder now we don't know what the evidence is really going to look like. That'll be before a judge or that the DOJ is looking at. But in my mind, it seems like that might be a stronger case.
2: Well, look, I think that's right. I think that's right. I don't you know, I won't be careful about talking about specific facts when neither of us have the underlying record. But I agree. It looks it looks stronger. It looks more core, mm-hmm. you know, to to Adobe. You see an actual, or there appears to be some actual effect, right? You know of of their of of their entry. You just didn't see that in Meta within, you know, right? Um, in in Meta within, it was a little bit of a, you know, Meta Meta has these resources. They can enter any market. Mark Zuckerberg is interested, you know. In
1: they a lot of things. Yeah. They can do right, it. Right, right, right.
2: But, but um, you know, so, so here I think it's a little different. And maybe I'd, I'd align it with, uh, you know, the Visa Plaid case sure. that DOJ brought in the Trump administration, where, you know, there was just, it looked like there was more evidence of a focus mm-hmm. on on the newcomer, the upstart, uh, the business model, and, and seeing, you know, some takeaway mm-hmm. of, of share or customers. You just, you just didn't have that in medical. you know, it was, it, right. it was just too speculative. It was, right it, you know, I, I don't, I don't like to be critical of the agency, even when, you know, they, you could be critical because, you know, you're, when you're there, you're, you're trying to put, you know, develop the law sometimes you know, you, you take risks. Right. But, but that, that seemed almost, um, uh, preordained, you know, Facebook wants to do a deal, well we don't like Facebook. Right. Right. Uh, this is the one in front of us. It, we better we better attack it. And um, you know, because otherwise we're gonna have some, you know, some explaining to do as to why. Mm-hmm. Um but I you know I I think it was a mistake. Just you just didn't see the evidence that it, you see in that at least potentially you see in these other deals where products are further along or where they're more in the core focus, you see the so, so I you know they 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 may get a better result. But it's still gonna be a hard case.
1: A hard, a hard case. case. Absolutely. I mean, as you said, that over 50 percent standard is really tough. Um, and, and it is I think that is going to be a hard case. We'll have to see what happens. I mean, there isn't a suit yet. It's yeah. still an investigation. So we don't even know know that the Department of Justice will. The news has suggested that there's been speculation, but we'll, we'll have to see what happens there. Um, I want to move on to another topic because I know that it's something you want to talk about. And I think it's really interesting. And I also think it's something that investors are not paying enough attention to and that is section five of the ftc act and so you know we have a lot we have non-antitrust folks probably listening to this um and so why don't we at least start by why don't you talk about what section five is what it does and what's going on here
2: sure so you know we've been talking a lot about the ftc and the ftc in fact does not uh enforce the sherman act but it enforces um uh, Section five of the FTC Act, which prohibits unfair methods of competition, it also enforces the Clayton Act, um, but but Section five is uh, believed uh, correctly, given what the courts have said, you know, to be broader than the Sherman Act prohibitions, and arguably broader than the prohibitions uh, of the Clayton Act, including the anti-merger uh, provisions, um, and so to the you know some people believe the law. Has developed over the past forty years in a way um, uh, unhelpful to plaintiffs, uh, and the agency uh, under new leadership uh, has decided, I think, to reinvigorate Section Five law uh, as a way around um, the development of the law in the development of Sherman Act law and Clayton Act law. Right, so. Mm-hmm. For Roughly 40 years, the FTC enforced uh, Section 5 in a manner generally consistent with the uh, other antitrust laws. Um, but that was a choice, right? It was a policy choice because right. of concern that uh, too aggressive enforcement would chill pro-competitive conduct. Well, you know, the new folks um, uh, differ with respect to what conduct should be legal, what conduct should be, benef- should be viewed as beneficial, um, and have decided to, uh, uh, in a sense, reinvigorate Section 5 law. They've adopted a, um, a view, a policy statement of Section 5 that makes clear that it is uh, distinct and separate from the Sherman Act or the Clayton Act, that it allows them to attack and prohibit conduct that does not meet the requirements of Sherman Act or even Mm -hmm. Clayton Act-type cases. So this is a, to me, this is a end run around, you know, the development of the case law in the last Mm -hmm. roughly 40 years that has focused, um, I think, appropriately on not only the harm, right, Mm -hmm. but um, uh, harm to competitors, you know, let's see, where's the harm to competition? You know, what are the benefits of this conduct? And they just, through this policy statement, can arguably throw all that development out Mm -hmm. and return to what I believe is, you know, 1960s, you know, competition law, you know, broadly defined. And say all these things that, you know, the the courts have decided were not harmful, uh, under the Sherman Act. Well, we don't need to meet those standards. We're going to show you they're harmful under some other uh, process that that turns mm-hmm. on, um, in a sense, exploitation.
1: Yeah. And, and I want to emphasize why that's really important to big business, um, because in my mind, so I've been writing for two years, you know, a company like Amazon that's had all sorts of criticism, right, uh, of, about its conduct. Well, you know, I think it's pretty safe. I think it's pretty safe because under the Sherman Act, well, it's just not clear that self-preferencing is an antitrust, that, that that's a theory, that that's an antitrust arm. Hey, it's really hard to challenge, let's say, a most favored nation's clause or predatory pricing. The things you hear critics talk about, and I keep saying that, but then all of a sudden, here comes this policy statement on Section 5. And you know what? That changes everything yeah. because I see the lawsuit against Amazon being under Section 5. And now all of a sudden, the FTC's made it a lot easier to actually find liability in these different actions that Amazon uh, allegedly has undertaken that the FTC doesn't like and and merger it affects mergers too right because you can say well the merger may not violate the Clayton Act but you know it's unfair under section 5 and now all of a sudden the FTC can really go after anything it doesn't like
2: no i th- i think that's exactly right and you know we've both we've both read about um uh lawsuits you know in the pipeline against mm-hmm. Amazon. Sure. And, and I agree with you. They're going to, you know, they're not going to be, um, monopolization. They're,
1: they're not gonna be, right.
2: They're going to be section five, you know, exploitive, coercive, unfair. Uh, unf- yeah. On, un- you know,
1: well, what did Christine what Wilson say? Mean? It was just a string of adjectives. Yeah, yeah exactly.
2: <laughs> I mean, it's always been a string. It's of adjectives, always been yeah. right. Which is why they got away from it. So that's what, that's what you're going to see. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's going to be interesting. It, it, I assume they're going to bring it in their administrative system so the commission can write an opinion uh, about, you know, its interpretation of its governance statute right. and then, and then you know, try to get that adopted, you know, by an appellate court, right? That's, but you that's see, that's
1: goal. that's the linchpin. I mean, that's, you know, I look at this and I think it's, it's so long as it's a defendant like Amazon that has the time and the money, maybe in the wherewithal to mm-hmm. stick it out. Uh, because I, I want to lay out again, the, the way this system works is if they sue internally in their administrative system, it's their own administrative law judge that makes sort of the trial court decision. And the first appeal goes to the commissioners. And that's where the commissioners get to do what Bill Al just described. They can write their own. They can do whatever they want, whether the ALJ goes against them or not. They can reverse. They can write the opinion they want. But now the defendant can go to federal court. And, you know, that's where I think things could change a
2: little bit. Well, I agree. I think, I mean, look, that's what did happen in the, as you know, in the late 70s, early 80s. Sure. They brought some expansive Section 5 cases and the appellate courts said, you know, too too far, you know, not enough evidence, too far of a legal theory. Uh, and that's, in fact, you know, why, why the agency sort of pulled back, you know, because it didn't have a, a clear principle of what what's going to fly and what's not going to fly.
1: Well, and I um, think there still isn't a
2: clear principle. And there is. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, there just
1: isn't. There, exactly. I mean, it, it's the whole, you, you, I'll know mm. it when I see it. <laughs>
2: right, right. <The> Standard. <laughs> and the interesting thing is, um, so, you know, look, in the ordinary course they get some deference, they get some deference in interpreting right. their own statute. But over the last 40 years, we've seen uh, the courts um, be less uh, willing to grant deference to agency interpretations of their own right. statute. So I think the combination of that development on administrative law side and the, you know, now clear divergence between sort of Sherman Act or antitrust law from this view of unfair methods of competition is is gonna hurt them. Yeah, right. I, I mean think so. you, it's 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 just too different for basically you know it it's a different analysis for the same conduct mm-hmm. in part depending on which agency pursues it. right and and that's that, that can't be good it doesn't
1: it doesn't Just, it, it isn't good yeah I mean, and it, it provides it, no guidance to businesses as mm-hmm. to what they should and shouldn't do what what conduct is or isn't yeah. legal going forward you know yeah. um i there are some other things we want to talk about too, and I want to move on because um you know, so I feel like we're there's about, so to much to talk about. about. and there's a lot of stuff that's kind of under the radar. And I feel like that's what we're talking about. And I'm glad we are because these under the radar things that are happening will impact publicly traded companies. Mm-hmm. And so generally, just as a general matter, both the Department of Justice and Federal Trade Commission are just erecting a lot of hurdles to completing deals. You know, included in those, I think is 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 no early terminations, which you're going to talk about mm-hmm. in a second. I think there's sudden distaste for private equity buyers, which I know you've got some opinions on. So let's move into that and what's going on there.
2: So let me let me say one thing, just to tie off what you said. Sure. If they're successful with this approach on Section 5, uh-huh. and in some of these cases, you know, you're looking at a turn back to an M&A environment that looks like the 1960s hmm. and not the 1990s, right? We're, right. We're turning the clock back not a few years, but decades. and you know, other people, deal lawyers, you know, investors, they're going to have a better sense of what the 1960s looked like sure. than me and you. But that's the kind of change we're looking at, you know.
1: You know, Bilal, in so many ways, our country's <laughs> moving back to the 1960s, yeah. Yeah. not just antitrust. So, yeah, yeah. So on <laughs> so, this, yeah let's yeah. talk about let's talk about so what's happening on here. this
2: other stuff. Right. First, the agency, not only are they in particular, the FTC, but this through both agencies, right not only are they trying to make changes on the substance of the law right they are trying to make changes in the process or procedures they follow right as a means i think right of just throwing up hurdles Mm -hmm. to in particular transact right and that's this idea of you know Hart scott right most of us doing this and listening here know that you know most deals used to that required a Hartscott filing notification to the government would get cleared in about two weeks. Yeah, they quickly, were sure. quickly, they see there was no issue. Well, this, the truth is that that's still true today, right? Most deals don't have issues. You don't see a lot of cases coming out of the agency. Um But, but they've decided just to stop, uh, particularly the FTC decided to stop granting early termination of transactions. And part of that, you know, they, they justified that we don't have enough people, we're so busy, we mm-hmm. just can't do it. Part of it is, I think, well, let's see, maybe someone will knock on the door on day 29 of the waiting period and tell us something we didn't know. Uh, so we want to just use that whole period. Well,
0: or
1: walk away from the deal yeah. because they don't yeah. want to wait the, the time, 30 days. Yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah. Or just let's put some hurdles in the way of things, right. you know. Uh, and some of this too extends to you know hedge funds and private equity funds who really are doing Often, doing acquisitions, whether partial or full, you know, for reasons not at all related to competitive uh, overlap, but but you know, sort of uh, good investment opportunities. If they if they get in there and and you know, in a sense, fix up companies who have gone gone astray. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. most private equity firms, in my recollection, are not buying highly successful businesses. They're looking at businesses right. who have hit some kind of rough spot. Maybe who needs some capital? Maybe who needs to get out of the public markets? Maybe who needs some new management? Mm-hmm. You know to turn them around, and the agency uh, doesn't have that perspective. They, yeah, not at all. They they think these guys are you know vultures laying off people, loading right. companies up with debt. You know, and and, they and then
1: dumping them. Yeah, and dumping. Yeah. Them, they don't
2: they don't think about the okay. What was the but for world? Right, it wasn't that you know these companies continue as you know titans of industry. They they, they fail. You know and and private equity you know sort of turns around some percentage of them, right, and mm-hmm. has the incentive to do that uh and they're just you know they're just um uh slamming the door on these guys you know they're they basically don't want to use them as um uh, rescuers of divested mm-hmm. assets they you know they they just have they they just have a different perspective of private equity.
1: Yeah, You know, and the crazy thing, it's not just different. It's a complete 180 because mm. if you go back five or six years, you'll find articles by FTC folks talking about how great private mm. equity is as a buyer because oftentimes it represents new entrants. Yeah. Definitely. Right. And that's a
2: good thing. New entrance, new, new entrance,
1: money, new, money, new investment, new yeah. management. Then that's a good thing. Mm. And so they talk about how they're happy and they prefer that. I, I know when I was a lawyer, I think most of our divestiture buyers when mm. I worked on deals were private equity. Um And the agency was perfectly happy, and now all of a sudden, absolutely not. So yeah. it's just, and that puts up hurdles because sometimes the only buyer out there is private equity, because the act the strategic buyers have their own interest yeah, problems.
2: Exactly. I mean, it's it's a very strange thing. I mean, we, I think as as um, you know, we want to see active management of companies, and I got to tell you, from my experience, there is nobody more active than you know, Apollo or blackstone i mean right, they, right they, exactly you know, you know they get in there and they want results and it's you know it, it 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 is it is what you want to see in 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 companies that have grown stagnant you sure. want people who you know we're going to turn this company around we're going to make a profit we're going to put it back on them a- and you know, make it a better competitor margins. which yeah.
1: is which is supposed to be good which for antitrust
2: i mean yeah you think about the the statism of you know, Japanese companies, for example, you know, again, not to date us, but, you know, remember the fear in the 80s about Japanese companies. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, they are they have a different model there. You know, it's not this dynamic, innovative approach, you know, creative destruction. And where's Japan been in the last 40 years, right? right? right. You know, Europe. Right. You know, the economy is dynamic here because of this idea of, you know, getting in. You know, letting go of assets that aren't working, but, right. but, but, also, the but fixing up the ones that you can and taking right. a risk. And, and you know, this is this is just a horrible, horrible um, change. You know, it's protective. It, it is literally protect the weaker, protect the less innovative companies. Yeah,
1: it's a very European approach, I think. Yeah. You yeah. know, now we are running out of time, but there's just one last topic because we're talking about private equity. You know, we do have the Department of Justice coming down on some private equity entities under Section 8. We're now talking about another law. Bill, we'll I'll talk about what's going on there. So
2: this is an interesting question, and I have in, I mean, I have somewhat different views on, on this. I mean, more aligned with DOJ. But, but uh, first, of Section 8, the Clayton Act prohibits interlocking directorates. So it prohibits, by its terms, a person from serving as a director. Of two or more competing companies, right? Mm-hmm. It's an old statute back from the 1914. Um really dormant. Uh, really yeah. dormant, but you know, created in response to the trust that developed, you know, back, back then. Now, um m- my view, you know, I I it comes comes from Tim Uris, uh, comes from something Tim Uris told me. He said Bill Baxter, and Bill Baxter was a giant in antitrust law you know, fixing it, in a sense, in the Reagan administration, he says, Bill Baxter said that Section 8 is the most important antitrust law, right? Interesting. I said, okay, if Bill Baxter thinks this, then then I got to think hard (laughs) about it. And, you know, uh, and I agree, right? Why do you want a person sitting on the board of two competing companies where there is at least the temptation to share information or to share direct? sure right now the agency the doj has pursued this uh in its most broadest scope right by looking at i think two things where the law is um either not clear or could use some uh improvement first because look we don't see situations where the same person is sitting on the board but we see situations where you know the same entity Private equi- as an example, private equity entity has um, um, its you know, partners uh, sitting on the boards of competing companies. And so it's not you know, John Smith on both, but it's John Smith and you know, Jane Smith. And look, they work down the hall. We think this is the same person, mm-hmm. right? And you know, there's some support for that idea. My experience is that private equity firms are very sensitive to this issue. Mm -hmm. you know and and aren't you know directing companies through through their individuals but at least it's you know quasi sensible i think or at least something to be sensitive to the other thing i noticed from the doj's actions though is they have a very potentially a very wide definition of what is a competitor right sure and and that i think is a problem because you know you can be you know pharmaceutical companies as an example right is it you know, is every pharmaceutical company a competitor because they do pharmaceuticals? No, right? They do different things. Certainly
1: not for merger purposes, yeah, they're yeah, not. They do
2: different things. <laughs> right. And so there I think this potentially expansive definition of you know who's a competitor uh is hurting, right? Again, again, the same reason you want private equity. Look, private equity goes on invests in companies, they put people on the board to manage that investment. And if you're cutting them out of managing their investment, you know I think again that leads to, to, to you know some some loss of dynamite, mm-hmm. right? Uh, now you know you can get around it. You can it, you can find someone like-minded and sponsor them for the board, and you know maybe you get eighty percent or seventy percent of what you would have got. But you know you want the way I put it is you know you want you want your mouth where your money is. you want <laughs> you want to be able to say what's going on here, move faster, you know, decide whether we're going forward or not with this product, you Mm -hmm. know, conserve resources. So I think the agency, again, and, and, you know, they're not bringing these cases. These are very simple cases to win. Mm -hmm. If you're correct on the fact, right, you can, you just cannot be on the board of two competing companies. Yeah, they're just pushing people off boards. So they're just basically pushing people off boards. Right. Because, you know, I mean, look, private equity doesn't want to get into litigation. Yeah, why well,
3: fight it? You know,
2: yeah. um, and I think, but again, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a problem. And now, you know, you saw it, look, 10 years ago, the F. 10, 15 years ago, the FTC did a little bit of this in the tech space, right? And And it was sort of legit. You know, you might have had somebody on the board of Google and Apple. Well, you know, 15 years ago or 20 years ago when they got on the board, they weren't sort of in the same space. Over time, it looked like they were moving into the same space, and so okay, you want to be sensitive to, to the same person on the board, but you also want to be sensitive to you know removing people who are going to you know direct these companies, um, you know, to, to produce. Basically.
1: Yeah, Where it does more bad than good, where, yeah. where it may be actually beneficial to
2: have yeah. that person. Again, I it's, hear it's, you. it's just a hostility, yeah, uh, in in a in a, in a way uh, that I think is unwarranted. But you know, like I said, I agree. I agree. Right. I do too. That, that you know, if Bill Baxter said it, I got to think seriously that, <laughs> Me too. You know, you I know go, I'll it's go with that. Right? Prophylactic.
1: Well, you know, the thing is, I think we're out of time. So you're really lucky. You don't have to answer our silly, stupid question, but we'll do this again. And I'll make sure <laughs> next time you have to answer the silly, stupid question. I'll answer it. Well, no, we don't have time. We're done. So well, all, <laughs> all I right. can stay say tuned. is stay tuned, stay tuned for Bill All to answer a silly, stupid question down the road. And Thank you very much. I think that was super interesting. Well,
2: it was fun. I hope it was fun. But the antitrust world may change. You know, in two years, I think so too. And and that's gonna you know your investments today may be in fact uh, affected by that down the road. You know,
1: the bad or good, bad, bad up or, or good. down.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, potentially bad. I think.
1: Potentially <laughs> bad. All right. Well, thanks so much. All
2: right. Thank you. Thank you, everybody.
1: Fun.